The Guardian. Only through the distance, both the chronological and the geographical distance, living in Barcelona for 13 years, it was only through that that I learned how to write about Colombia. I needed the distance. I needed it to become a strange place for me. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Richard Lee. This week, we're setting off for the Americas, where we find two novelists looking at how the past informs the present day. When the Colombian author Juan Gabriel Vasquez started writing a novel exploring the vulnerability of a public reputation, he found himself circling another question entirely. We grow up with few certainties in life, I think, but one of them used to be that the past is the past. It's set. It's written on stone. But I think all of us have at some point in our lives a revelation that it's not true, that the past changes, the past moves around, it's not fixed. And even though the Mexican writer Alvaro Enrique's novel revolves around a tennis match between the painter Caravaggio and the poet Francisco de Quevedo, it's not really a historical novel at all. It's not a novel about the 17th century. It's a novel that, that tries to explain our lives through the invention of modernity, you know, the, the key point in which modern banking and modern state violence and modern sexualities were born. After 16 years exploring Colombia from afar in novels The Informers, The Secret History of Costaguana and The Sound of Things Falling, Juan Gabriel Vázquez moved back to Bogotá in 2012. The slim volume he wrote on his return imagines an aging cartoonist whose life is thrown into question at his moment of triumph. Here we find Javier Mayarino en route to a ceremony at which this countercultural icon will be celebrated by the establishment. He's looking out over the park and reflecting on the power a pen can wield. Mayarino's gaze swept over the twilight universe of Parque Santander. It took just an instant to spot three people reading the paper his paper, and he thought that all three would soon pass or had already passed their eyes over the letters of his name in print and then his signature, that clear uppercase letter that soon deteriorated into a chaos of curves and ended up disintegrating into a corner, the sad trail of a crashing plane. Everyone knew the space where his cartoon had always been, in the very center of the first page of opinion columns that mythic place where Colombians go to hate their public figures or find out why they love them, that great collective couch of a persistently sick country. It was the first thing anyone's eyes saw when they reached those pages. The black square, the slender strokes, the line of text or brief dialogue beneath the frame, the scene that left his desk each day and was praised, admired, commented on, misinterpreted, repudiated in a column of the same newspaper or another, in the irate letter of an irate reader, in a debate on some morning radio show. Yes, it was a terrible power. There was a time when Mayarino desired it more than anything else in the world. He worked hard to get it. He enjoyed it and exploited it conscientiously. And now that he was 65, the very political class he'd so attacked and hounded and scorned mocked without consideration or respect for the ties of family or friendship, and he'd lost quite a few friends as a result, and even a few relatives, that very same political class had decided to put the gigantic Colombian machinery of sycophancy into action to create a public homage, which for the first time in history, and perhaps for the last, would celebrate a cartoonist. Yeah. 
Fran, this is the fourth novel to which you admit, because you have two <laughs> previous novels that you don't own up to. Yes, That's yeah. true, isn't it? And it's a slim novel, but it is absolutely packed with politics. And I'm really interested to know what is going on in it. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, it's a very different book from the other ones, not only in length, in format, let's say, um, but that's very important for me too. My novels before this one tend to digress and to go here and there and back in time and tell different stories. This one is much more focused. It's I think of it as belonging to that family of novels which I love. For instance, The Great Gatsby. Maybe even Heart of Darkness in its purpose and the concentrated study of one man's downfall, one man's predicament and downfall. And in that, it really takes the shape of a short novel, which is a genre I love. That, that like for the me, novella. Like a novella, yes. Mm. yeah. It's not a novella. It's a little bit longer than that. But I thought of it as a novella. That little machine capable of having the concentration and the subtlety of a short story, but also the ability to go deep into the study of a character that novels have. And so this is the study of one man's predicament. His name is Javier Mayarino. He is a very successful and influential political cartoonist. He's about 65 years old when the novel begins. And as he is being paid a homage by the country's elites, somebody approaches him, a young woman, approaches him and asks him to remember something that happened that might have happened at his place, at his home, 28 years before. That day, that thing that happened involving a very well-known Colombian politician, that incident led to a cartoon. Mayarino drew a cartoon that basically destroyed one man's life and reputation, which is the main thing in the novel. But now, in the present time, talking to this, this young woman who has approached him, he realizes that he doesn't really remember what he saw. And they go into this personal quest into their memories, into their private, their most intimate pasts, to try to remember what really happened. She may or may not have been abused at a party yes. at his house and she that's, was his that's daughter's the crux friend. Of the thing. Yes. Yes. But it's talking about the limits of the personal and the political in a way, isn't it? Yes. That this sort yeah. of border between public memory and private experience. Yes. Yes. Well, the novel changed while I was writing it, which is something I love when it happens because it means the novel is alive. It starts thinking about things you hadn't foreseen. And so I, I, I started writing a novel about the fragility, the vulnerability of our public reputations, our public image. And at some point, the novel became more interested in something else. And it started discussing the fragility, not of our public image, but of our private memories, the fragility of our past. We grow up with few certainties in life, I think, but one of them used to be that the past is the past. It's set, it's written on stone. But I think all of us have at some point in our lives the revelation that it's not true, that the past changes, the past moves around, it's not fixed. First of all, it's never past, really. It's like that Faulkner 
quote, the past is not dead, it's not even past. It stays with us, it, it shapes our present lives, but also it changes. We find a document, we find a photograph, somebody tells us a story, and we start realizing that our old certainties start moving around and they're not certainties anymore. We start having doubts about what really happened and we realize memory is unreliable and that's what the, the novel tries to explore. You're talking about it as if it's an existential novel, which it is in a well, way, but it's, also, so. it, but it's also about the nation forgetting, isn't it? You talk about Colombia yes. forgetting, burying its past. Yes, that's very good, yeah. Well, th that's a source of anxiety for me, this kind of amnesia that I see as a national circumstance, really. My country suffers from such an urgent present that sometimes it seems impossible for us to spend a little bit of time in the past, in a recent history, trying to figure out how we got here. Right now, for instance, and this is this has nothing to do with the novel, but it's, uh, it's something I, I'm very interested in. We're trying to negotiate peace between the Colombian government and the uh, FARC guerrillas that have been around for 50 years. And one of the things we have to do in order to successfully negotiate peace is to try to agree on a narrative of these 50 years. So that means remembering and trying to remember accurately what has happened to us during the last 50 years. So in a way, this novel is the, the private version of that conflict in which characters have to move back to their own past for some pages in order to try to figure out what happened there, what really happened there. He's a cartoonist, a, yes. a caricaturist, a newspaper caricaturist. And his wife, they split up early on. And one of her complaints is that he could have been an artist and he's sold yeah. out by being a caricaturist. And I wonder whether part of what's going on in this novel is a negotiation about the sort of newspaper quick hit record of stuff as opposed to a deeper, more sustained critique of the artist. I think it can be, it can be seen that way, but there's also the conflict between the private, more subtle achievements of a painter, of an artist, and the immense boost of adrenaline you get from power as a political commentator in a country such as mine, where political comment does have, in the press, does have the power to influence and to change people's lives and to change mentalities. And it's looked up to and it's respected and it's feared. And this is the position the caricaturist has in Colombian newspapers. Still this, has. Still, yes. And, you're, and it, the, the novel opens with a, with a fleeting vision of Rendon, yeah. who did exist yes. and died in 1931, who is sort of the sort of god of caricaturists. Yes, yes. He was the most influential political cartoonist in Colombia in the 1920s. Uh, he was feared, he was respected. He could destroy a politician's career with a couple of drawings. And he was the original uh, interest that I had, the original impulse to write the novel came from just sheer curiosity about his life and about this position of power. And then I realized that after seven years of writing a political column, I had experienced that kind of relationship with the public, with readers of political columns, readers of political opinion. And at some point in the novel, it is said that the opinion pages in Colombian newspapers are like the couch in a psychiatrist's or in a psychologist's room. Colombia is quite a 
traumatized country and we look for our own opinion about things in columns, in political cartoons. So these people are very influential. I knew that for seven years. And I tried to put all these neuroses I had as a political commentator into the character of Mayarino, who has a, a very different sort of power. The power of the political cartoonist in Colombia is very different from anybody who writes in the press because you can use words to answer to a political column. You cannot answer to a cartoon. You would make a fool of yourself. And this, this implies a sort of impunity that's on the side of cartoonists, and they know this and they, and they use this. You lived in Europe for many years, and yeah. you recently went, well, you, three years ago, four years ago, you went back to Bogotá, which yes. is where you were originally from. Yes. What is your relationship with Colombia like as a writer? Do you find it more difficult to write honestly when you're there, or is it different? Well, I left Colombia in 96, and uh, my first official book is a short story collection set in Belgium and in, in France. Because when I left Colombia, I, I thought I wasn't able to write about Colombia. I found it too obscure a, a place. I, I found that I, I thought I didn't understand it. And um, I have always said that it was only through the distance, both the chronological and the geographical distance, living in Barcelona for 13 years, it was only through that that I learned how to write about Colombia. I needed the distance. I needed it to become a strange place for me. I came back in 2012 and I found, astonishingly, it's still a strange place. I mean, living there, I find I am not completely at ease there. I do not belong completely as I never did belong in Barcelona or in Paris or the other cities. And that sense of strangeness I discovered it's absolutely essential for me to be able to write. That sense of discovery, of unpredictability, the idea that my city is not a place I completely control and, and know. And that idea that it can surprise me is where my novels ultimately come from. And do you ever feel threatened there? I mean, is it a threatening culture? You're, you're quite outspoken, aren't you? <clears throat> yeah, that's a very good question. And I think it's well put, uh, a threatening culture. I think it is. I think it is. And it's, it's not metaphorical. Uh, you get threats very easily. It's sort of a routine. Uh, Have you personally been threatened? Yes, but not, not in a serious way. I don't take those things seriously because everybody is. What sort of threats? Well, um, you know, during the seven years I wrote columns, I used to get occasional emails or, uh, or comments in my webpage just below the political column. But this is not serious. This is just the mentality of a country that has grown used to violence. This is why it is essential for half of the country to get that peace process over with and start a new life in which there is no war. And probably we can change this mentality of polarization and violence that we, we have been living in and grown used to over the last half century. In 2014, you won the Impact Prize, now known as the Dublin Prize. And you said that your two influences were Marquez and James Joyce. But you have, in the past, you've been critical of the influence of Marquez. And I wondered if your sense of estrangement and needing to be strange was also partly a need to keep yourself distant from such a powerful legacy yeah, of that yeah. particular Latin American storytelling tradition. Yes, yeah. Yes, what I said about Joyce and Garcia Marquez was that there are two best-known novels, Ulysses and 100 Years of Solitude, were the novels that made me want to become a writer. 
I read 100 Years of Solitude when I was 16 and Ulysses when I was 20. And the two novels combined just put it into my head that this is what I want to do with my life. My relationship with, with Garcia Marquez as a reader has been of just fascination and admiration and awe. But I have grown impatient, I think that's the word, with the equivalence between Latin America and magical realism. That's just not true. And the preeminence of Garcia Marquez as a novelist, I think he's one of the three most important novelists in the history of the Spanish language, along with Cervantes, that has created the illusion that magical realism is the only way to discuss Latin America, or that Latin America, in fact, responds in its reality to magical realism, which is absolutely not true. And when I have personally to position myself in relation to Garcia Marquez, I always have to remind readers that the fact that I'm Colombian doesn't mean that the influence of the great Colombian novelist just falls on me inevitably. And I have to discuss how, in reality, literary influence is much more complicated than that. It's a question of method. I have this obsession, this idea in my head, and I have to find the right method to turn it into a book. And that method can come from Garcia Marquez, but also from Philip Roth or Joseph Conrad. Conrad or Dostoevsky, or... Uh, or Sartre, actually, because, I mean, I thought this was quite a French sort of novel, in a way. It, oh, thank you. I, it I chimes with the French tradition, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, um, um, well, I, I was talking before about the extension of the book. I think of uh, the novels of Patrick Modiano, the French Nobel Prize of recent years. Those little things, 150 pages in length, that are able to deliver a strong punch, you know, and, and, and go deep into the examination of one subject. Yeah, I love that tradition in which the French are, are really very good. Reputations is translated by Anne McLean and published by Bloomsbury. Four novels into a career that has brought him prizes, including the Joaquin Mortiz First Novel Prize and the Heralde, the Mexican writer Alvaro Enrique has made it into English with Natasha Wimmer's translation of Sudden Death. The Roman piazza on which Enrique places Caravaggio and Quevedo becomes the focal point for the collision between old world and new, the confusions of a cultural clash that accompanied the first wave of globalization. But when Enrique came to the studio, he began by explaining why he constructed his novel around a tennis match. Well, for years I was trying to put Caravaggio in a novel because he's such a fascinating character. You know, he, he was an openly gay artist in the 17th century Rome. He, he was an assassin, he was a, a petty criminal and a great maestro, at the same time the, the inventor of Baroque art. So I was never able to catch him, to, to be able to construct him in a narrative key. He kept getting out of your clutches. Well, well he, he's, such, he's such a famous figure. You know, we, we know almost everything about him. He, so, so it was difficult. And it was rereading a, a, a biography of his written by Peter Robb, an Australian art historian, that I discovered that when he was young, he was a palacorda player. That is, palacorda is not exactly tennis. 
I don't have to do that difference in any other country, but here, every time I say tennis, there, there, is, there is something about England and tennis. I, I will not mess with that. <laughs> so he was a Palacorda player that, that was something like real tennis, but much wilder, much more violent. And, and street tennis. It was a street tennis, but it, it was maybe more similar to soccer. It was like soccer, with, but the net was placed in the center of the pitch instead of at the end of it. And the guys had some sort of racket. They had a racket. They, they were rackets, but, but there was violence involved. <laughs> there, there was kicking. There, there were goals. The truth is that no one really knows exactly what was played, how it was played. So that gave me a lot of freedom uh, as a novelist. But anyway, when I saw that, you know, Caravaggio there in the middle of the court, the solitude of the court, this young artist sweating in, in Rome's noon, trying to play tennis, the whole novel came out. And obviously, the only character that could deal with that beast was Francisco de Quevedo, you know, the imperial poet of Spain who had uh, like a double life, a double personality as a writer. So by one hand, he would write maybe a triple personality. <laughs> by one hand, he would write the, the most powerful erotic sonnets ever written, I think. By other hand, he would write this repulsive in odas to the empire, you knowing these treatises about the grandeur of Spain that were completely ridiculous and pathetic. Uh, but in, in his hidden side, he kept publishing anonymously all his life the most critical pages about the um, Spanish empire ever written, you know? books like His Dreams, that, that was very early translated into English while he was alive. B books like that one were critical and to an incredible degree of the Spanish Empire, and he was to the translator of Thomas More, Utopia, to Spanish. So he was a really interesting character and, and obviously a brain with legs. No? So uh, my impression was only him can be against Caravaggio in a tennis match. Yeah, but there's no actual evidence that he was ever in Rome on the 4th of October, 1599. No, no, no. In, the, in, in October of 1599, he was under house arrest. <laughs> he, he was at his house in Madrid because he had committed a crime. Que Quevedo was younger than Caravaggio. In, in, in that day, Quevedo was 19 and he was already an assassin. Caravaggio was in that moment a criminal, but to kill, to actually kill a person, he would take a few years still. So you've arranged them on the chessboard to your own convenience? Well, the tennis court is a perfect space to speak about the whole world. No, it's, it's a, a tennis court is like a sonnet, a limited space, very ruled, very square, in which everything has to bounce inside to make a point, and in, in which the whole morals of the period are discussed. No? So the tennis, I, I don't know if it's a court, This the place where they, they play, maybe it was a pitch, I, I don't know. But the tennis court was an excellent narrative tool to just begin telling a story. You know, the, the, I think that the novel is not really about a tennis match. It's about many other things, mainly about the objects that rolled to the tennis court. But it was an excellent tool to deal with this tremendously difficult thing that is to tell a story. And this story, it's, it's, I mean, it's not a piece of history, is it? You view these themes through a historical lens, but you're playing fast and loose with the facts. Yes, I'm a novelist. I, I'm a writer. I can do whatever I want in my life in general, <laughs> not only in my field. But what is interesting is that the weirdest things that, that are there in the novel are historical. The fact that Francisco de Quevedo, protector was married to a granddaughter of Hernán Cortés is absolutely real. My favorite one of all, the, the fact that Galileo and Caravaggio were roommates 
in that period is absolutely real. They both lived in the Palazzo Madama, that was smaller in that time, of course, and, and today hosts the, the Italian Senate. They were roommates, and, and, and it is true that as Galileo was writing his parables theory, he, he would do that seeing his friend Caravaggio playing tennis in the mornings. I think that that's more novelist than anything else. And, and it's true that their patrons were, were, well, millionaires and very powerful politicians, but at the same time were, like, I, I don't know, outsiders in Rome that proposed that living with a more fluid sexuality was all right, and that proposed that maybe alchemy should be exchanged by chemistry and, and maybe theology by physics. and So they live in a very liberal world. That is absolutely true. What I do is, I am a Latin American writer, so I'm a descendant of Borges. <laughs> I, I can intervene history. <laughs> you know, that, that's what I did mainly. And you do intervene. I mean, we hear about the narrator's researchers at the New York Public Library. We hear about the, the fine avocados that he picks up on the corner at the deli. With the, some emails exchanged with his editor. When, when did it become clear to you that you had to appear in the book? Well, it's not myself. It's, it's a narrator. It's, it's a narrator. No, no, no. I was thinking of the narrator. It, this will be a too long story, but, but it, it's a novel between many other things about decapitations. So, so it, it's really a novel about the contemporary problems in Mexico. No, it's a novel about, about bio, recent novel in Mexico. It's not a novel about the 17th century. It's a novel that, that tries to explain our lives through the invention of modernity, you know, the, the key point in which modern banking and modern state violence and modern sexualities were born. So thinking in those terms, I, I was thinking in a different narrator than myself, that is a, a, a poet whose son was once standing in the wrong place in the city of Cuernavaca in Mexico and was killed in one of these rampages of violence. That's why the, the narrator is so depressed. No, I, I am not that depressed. I have a tendency, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I, I don't have such a negative point of view of the world. But, but of course, it, it's again a game. No, I, I think that is always more interesting when, when you can see the author in a book, no? when, when the author comes out and, and you can see him. For me, it was important that it was not considered an historical novel because a reader of historical novels would be disappointed with the amount of very bold lies that I tell <laughs> in the novel. Your narrator shares, as you say, there's a game that you play. The narrator shares some facts of his life with yours. I mean, and this is a, a novel that you wrote when you were outside of Mexico. I mean, is this a novel that could only have been written for you in New York City? It's a novel that, that could only be written in, in the New York Public Library just because it's, it's a novel that includes its archive. Now, I, I always try to avoid writing Balsasian novels, no, novels that begin in one point and end in another. I, I, I belong to a different world. I, I listen to music in, in an iPod. No? That, that, that means that I am old now. <laughs> but, but anyway, I grew up listening to LPs, but really we belong to this fragmentary world, and, and I think that the explanations that a writer can give about this fragmentary world come in, in our own style, no? the, our generational style. So in this novel I was working specifically with the idea of the reader not really knowing if she was reading a novel or an essay or a memoir or anything. And I, to, to produce that effect, what I did was to, to do the novel and next to it, the archive. So, so as you progress through the story of the tennis match and the story of the conquest of Mexico and the story of, of, of the birth of modernity, you are seeing the archive that the author 
is consulting in the public library. So in that sense, I think that novels should, they, they are not sacred objects, you know. And a novel is, is a register of a mind wandering during a period in a place. You know? so, so for me it's important that, that, that this state in the novel where it was written and how it was written. I'm also wondering this this kind of fragmentary nature. Is this also uh, you're trying to grasp that feeling of being at one of those periods where history could go in any sort of kind of direction in a similar way that it felt back then, like history could have gone in any one of a number of directions, this kind of contingent nature of possibility? Well, these characters were the inhabitants of, of, of the transition between the 16th and the 17th century we're the first global citizens of the world. I think that we lo look a lot like they're. We, we are as lost as they are, and we are as confused as they were. We live in this world that became really small, and they had, I think, the same sensation. You have to remember that the, the fall of Tenochtitlan, I see it from a Mexican parochial perspective, and, and that is to see it as, as an invasion, no, as an European invasion. And if you see it from the European point of view, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. no, you see it as the invasion and the annexation of a continent to Europe. But if you see it in a global scale, what happened was that what was between China and Spain, that was the main empire at the, at the moment, was Mexico City. So you had to defeat Mexico City to get to China and open the world to commerce for the first time with really safe routes. So that should be, that when you're reading the novel, you, you should have that sensation of confusion that this generation had. They, they, they lived in, in a world that, by one hand, was easy to draw in, in an abstract way because the world became really an orange in that moment. But by the other hand, was really confusing as, as the world we live in now. No, I, I really don't know what, I live in New York and I don't know what, what will happen with our family in a few more months no, after November. And there's that sense that in the novel, it feels as if the plates could have shifted entirely differently. You have these guys arriving in a couple of ships and they're tiny ships that can go up a river. They're, they're ships that if you tie it up to a tree will stay where it sits. I mean, it's this kind of tiny fragment that nevertheless changes the world. Is this how you feel about history? That it's, it's about individuals, about accidents? It, it's, it's unbelievable. No, the conquest of Mexico is simply un, unbelievable. That, I, I'm afraid that that is true. No, it was 18 guys with 18 horses and, and a few more soldiers and an Indian girl. Now, there is the, the privilege of the novelist. No, and I, I think that the novel is a way of knowing things still. It's just that the knowledge you get from a novel is, is not demonstrable mathematically. You don't have to prove it. No? But anyway, I think that as new generations have new knowledge and, and new positions and new moral postures, you can say things that were not said before. And as a novelist, you have more freedom than an historian. No? I think that the, the conquest of Mexico would be impossible to explain without the figure of Malinche, no? Malinali, the, the translator, the little girl that appears there, that, that became the lover of Hernán Cortés, and was obviously a political genius. If you put in a chart all the years of Cortés, and you put in the same charts his years with Malinali, you will see very clearly that the only moment in his life, because he was an imbecile, the only moment in his life in which he was not a genocidal character, but a very brilliant politician and, and military mind, are the years that he was spending with Malinali. So an, as a novelist, you can propose that. No? It was really a woman 
Mexico was conquered by a woman who was resenting the Aztec Empire, and she was the one who manipulated it. I strongly believe that, but <laughs> I am not an historian. I can believe, as I told you, I can believe whatever I want. But, I mean, she's also a very interesting figure because she's this figure between these two civilizations in, in a way that this novel, in some sense, is a figure between two civilizations. It's written in the language of the conquistadors, and it's published by initially by a publishing house in Spain, and yet it's all about empire and how empire interacts with the indigenous people of the Americas. So you're kind of part of that um, mixed up but, culture but, in the middle. Yeah, but, but don't we live like that all the time? I, isn't that the world in which we live right now? What this book proposes about her as the mediator would be impossible to be proposed before. No? When I was a kid, the, well, it's still in Mexico, the word malinchista means traitor, not someone that betrays their people to go with the other people. And, and also as, as a generation, I, I think that I'm not alone in this. For the first time, thanks to the growth of, of the women's rights movements and everything, we're understanding that this kid was a genius. And, and maybe we, we really are their children. You know, she is the... the Mexico has, as you surely know, the Mexican narrative literature has this thing with, with the father. You know? It's always about the absent father and the father and the father. It's like 19th century thing. God is dead. Hernán Cortés, we don't like him. So what we do with this fatherless country? Maybe we are constructing now narratives uh, about the feminine figures that we simply could not see one generation ago. So we are in a moment of transition, and, and I think that's reflected in a novel, not because I'm really good, but because that's how it is. Think about St. Paul. No? What we can do is, is give testimony of our... I, I'm speaking here like an American preacher. I'm <laughs> very far from that. <laughs> think about Paul. Let's just call him Paul. No? But, but what a writer does is that. No? You see the world and you put it in a book as you see it, and the people will add the real meaning to the book. If this is the, your first novel for English readers who are meeting you for the first time, is it a kind of typical novel for, for you, or is there no such thing as a typical novel? I think that is just a little bit more extreme. I'm, I'm a very insecure man. I'm a very insecure man. So I began being a, a, not a conservative writer, but, but a writer who could not dare to push the books further and further away. And the older I get the more radical I can be, and I see that, that the readers keep going with me, so, so I take more and more freedoms. But, but yes, it would be a, a typical novel. I think I, I wrote all my books, except the first one, you know, I was so young, but all my books in general are, are, are written in the margin of the form novel. You never know, who, am I really reading a novel right now? Is, is this an historical book? Is, is, is this a, a, a book of essays? Is, is this a confession, a memoir? What is this? All my books have that, that general form, and, and certainly none of my books feels like a 19th century novel. No, they, they always mess with time and, and circumstance. So what's next? Should we expect a scientific tract, a lyric poem? What, what's coming? <laughs> I'm writing a Western right now. <laughs> I'm working in a Western. That, that's all I will say, not to ruin anything. Um, I, a Western I, set in the United States? Yes, or? yes, yes. I, I think that I, as, as a Mexican in Trumpland, I am the person that can write the new Western. <laughs> it's a little bit arrogant, but that's how I feel. I, I'm, I'm really offended. I'm ready to, <laughs> to give that fight. <laughs> Sudden Death is translated by Natasha Wimmer and published by Harville Secker. Thanks to Álvaro Enrique, Juan Gabriel Vázquez, Claire Armstead and our reader, Marta Bausalz. 
Next week, we'll be investigating literary disappearances with Idra Novi and Martin McInnes. For more interviews, discussions and live events, search for Guardian Books Podcast. You can find us on the Guardian website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud or even on your smartphone. Just spark up your favourite podcast app. But until next time, from me, Richard Lee and my producer, Susanna Tresillian, thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.